Bibles this morning and turn to the main text that I'm going to be looking at. I'll be looking at other scriptures also, but the main text is going to be Revelation chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning as we meet together, as we break open the bread of life, Holy Spirit, we want to be able to be able by you to listen, to take the scriptures to heart, to apply them to ourselves. And Lord, if need be, to make the necessary adjustments that may mean repentance of sin, to get back where we once were as a Christian. And if somebody here does not know you yet, they have not responded to the demonstration of love that Christ showed us on the cross of Calvary, then you would convict them of where they would stand before you and where they would go if they died today. So, Lord, I pray that we would just be yours today so we can be vessels of honor. And I ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, this is the third message of three messages springing from the passage of Scripture in the epistle of Jude, chapter 1, verse 21, where the Bible says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That passage does emphasize the Christian's responsibility. Now, in my assessment, which I believe is rooted in Scripture, is that the most noble goal for a Christian to reach is growing in love for God. Staying in the love of God and making sure to regularly cultivate that love in order to keep this reflexive command in, in Jude, keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, stay where you're supposed to stay that you're already at. Jesus Christ indicated clearly in Matthew chapter 13 that the church age would be a very strange era, and it really is. He said by way of a parable that the term church used in its broadest sense would include wheat and tares. Now what he meant by that is that the church is going to include people who are true and false, people that are faithful and unfaithful, people that are righteous and unrighteous. There will be servants and there will be sitters. There will be those who know the lingo and those who know the Lord. There'll be those who like religion and those who genuinely love God. There'll be, Joe, there'll be those who socialize and those who want to evangelize. There'll be those who play church and those who are the church. There'll be those, those who tip their hats to God and those who give him their lives. That's going to be the age of the church. And if you haven't experienced those things, you probably, if you've been around, you have experienced all of those things. 
So then the distinguishing mark of a true saving faith is love for God. And when a person is truly expressing saving faith, there is a great love for God and a great delight in the law of God, in the very word of God. A Christian, a Christian's delight will be that God be honored in their life and that God be glorified in their life. Just like we sang this morning, the chief happiness, like the psalmist wrote, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's what a believer is. That's what somebody who knows God is. That's what's going on inside of you, even though those things going on inside of you are not done perfectly. So most people in this world are consumed, though, with their own happiness. There are many people who say that they are Christians, but they are consumed with their own happiness. They don't pass the first test that Jesus told to his disciples in Matthew 10. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is the highest test that there is. And we all, as believers, need to pass that test. See, people love themselves. They don't love God. And the days in which we live, it is obvious, and again, the scriptures ring true, where Paul told Timothy, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And you notice that in a passage of Scripture like that, there's not both things going on. You either give up one for the other. They say that the worst thing that can happen to a car engine is heat death. Your car gets so hot it overheats and stops running. If you don't catch it soon, it hap or if it happens too frequently, it will severely compromise the health of your engine. But most vehicles are equipped with a gauge which monitors the temperature of your vehicle. If the temperature exceeds the normal, then the temperature gauge will warn you. It either will blink at you or the needle will move into the red danger zone. I don't know if you've ever been there. I have. And uh, this, it's not a good place to be, but you probably have if you've driven for a while. So in a similar way, though, the Scripture is our visible gauge. It's our gauge that we use to see how we are standing. It is our gauge to use to see if things are working properly in our Christian lives. Like, are we keeping ourselves in the love of God? If God is not our highest desire, check your spiritual gauge. And then ask yourself some questions. Is God my supreme delight? Do you long 
for the deep, in the deepest part of your soul to love God and to draw near to Him, to know more about Him? Do you take your responsibility seriously to keep yourselves in the love of God? And are you taking measures to hedge against declining love and the tragedy of love uncultivated? Now, here are some things before I get to Revelation to check your spiritual gauge to see if you are declining in love. There are like five marked characteristics of declining love. The first one would be when love becomes less an object of fervent desire, holy delight, and frequent contemplation, where we can suspect at that point that our love is declining in our soul. If there's a coldness in our affections for God, if the mind grows earthly and carnal and selfish and self-centered. Usually when that happens, a dark, gloomy shadow will gather around the character and the glory of God. If one has a divided heart, it is subject to rival interests. And when that happens, God is no longer the object of one's supreme love, nor the fountain of one's pure delight. God's presence that was once glorious to you and God's voice that was once so sweet to hear all of a sudden turns dull and murky, hard to hear and difficult to understand. You can suspect that you are declining in love when you feel that way or are in that state. A second thing would be when there is little inclination for communion with God. And that the the throne of grace is sought as a duty rather than a privilege. That is the throne of coming to God in prayer. In any case, little fellowship is experienced, which is a strong evidence of a decline of love in the soul. That the person who knows God, who with eyes of faith has discovered some of his glory and the power of the Holy Spirit, understood and felt something of his love in their life will be able to discern between God's sensible presence in your life and and, or his absence in your soul. You'll be able to detect that. And we will all agree, the more in any object is the source of sweet delight and contemplation, the more we desire its presence and the more we are missing it when it's absent. If you are declining in love for Jesus, then your spiritual affection will become blunted and your love frozen, and usually by contact with worldly influences and occupations. When a Christian gets immersed in the cares of the world, the sense of the presence of God is not felt by them. Was God absent at that point? No. The change was in the creature. The change was in the person, was in us, not in God. So if you are a professing child of God, this is no way to live. God does not want us to live like that. It's actually a poor 
lifeless existence, unworthy of your profession, unworthy of the name that you bear, Jesus Christ, and unworthy of the glory, glorious destiny that you are heading for. And what is that? That is the very presence of God, where we drop off these bodies, we drop off this body of sin, and we go into the presence of God and enjoy him forever, right? Well, we need to start enjoying him now, today. Just like it says in 1 John, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and so we are called that. And then he says, beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not yet appeared yet what we will be. We know that when, we will, that he, when he will appear, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. A third thing would be this. When there is less holy obedience in our walk with God, we may ascertain that a declining of our uh, love for God is present. That means obedience is the action actually of loving and following Christ. The Holy Spirit of God set you apart in salvation and makes you holy. And that means that every true Christian will love Christ and obey him though not perfectly. Like John 15, 10 tells us, if you keep his commandments, you will abide in his love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That means you'll do exactly what Jesus did. The purpose of God choosing us from Ephesians and in 1 Peter was for what? 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, we are chosen to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. See, election leads one through salvation to a life of obedience, and obedience is what God wants from your life now that you are one of his followers, one of his children. That is why you're saved. That's why he saved you. That God saves a soul not to leave them to follow their own path, but to become a joyful, obedient servant of Jesus Christ. And indeed, the person who actually obeys Christ finds out that God's commandments are not burdensome and that in Christ is actually true freedom. True freedom. You're freed up from everything. You're freed up from guilt and judgment. You're freed up that you know you stand before God righteous because of what Christ has done. That's freedom. Again, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Is the one who loves me. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then Jesus went on to say this, And he who does not love me does not keep my word. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's clear. So you say, well, how does that look? Well, when the Holy Spirit of God, who's in us, causes us to obey Christ, when the Spirit of God says, hey, listen, believe 
and be baptized because, you know, believing is actually a command of God for you to respond to his creatures responding. The believer responds like this. I love you, Lord. I want to obey. Or when the Holy Spirit of God says not to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, the believer says, I, sh- I love you, Lord. I want to obey. And the Spirit of God shows us from Scripture that we ought to study and show ourselves approved to God. A believer says, Lord, I love you and I want to obey. When the Word of God says that we are to be present and partake of the Lord's table, as often as your church assembles to do it, you say, Lord, I love you and I want to obey. When uh, the Bible says that a husband filled with the Spirit ought to love his wife, then the husband says, I love you, Lord, and I want to obey. And when the Holy Spirit of God says to the wife to submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, the wife says, I love you, Lord, and I want to obey. When the Scripture tells us to be thankful in everything and rejoice always and pray without ceasing, ceasing, a believer responds, I love you, Lord, and I want to obey. So when the Holy Spirit of God says abstain from all sexual immorality, the believer responds, I love you, Lord, and I want to obey. And when the Holy Spirit of God says to young people, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, the young believer responds, I love you, Lord, and I want to obey. You get the point? The point is that we obey. The purpose and goal of election is obedience. There's a fourth reason that there would be a decay of love to the saints from the saints of God, and that would be that, that their love is declining. If, if God, if, if we love God with a sincere and a deepening affection, then we must love his image wherever we find it. In other words, we will love the saints. That's all over the scriptures. If I... Uh, the Bible says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. All right? So that's a characteristic. And the last one characteristic would be when, when love to God declines, also decline in the interest of the advancement of God's work on earth will decline. In other words, there will be a decline of a lively interest in the increase of Christ's kingdom and the growth of his church. There will be a decline in the diffusion of truth in the world. There will be a decline in the deepening of holiness in the church. And there will be a decline in the conversion of sinners when love declines. We really don't care about those things. So the legacy of heaven and the inexhaustible riches of God's love belong to all who trust Christ and love him. And pursuing our relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important goal of the Christian life. But what if we drift from that normal goal? What if we drift from that noble goal? Because I think if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you have drifted here and there. Right? You have felt cold and distant from God. You have not had your affections so overwhelmed that you wanted to be obedient to the Lord. You slipped back, you slipped away from that. Well, a great example of that is found right here in Revelation chapter 2, and I want you to turn there now. Here in Revelation chapter 2, 
the Ephesian church got knocked off their course by good and noble spiritual pursuits. In fact, they were doing things that were vital and important to the ministry of all churches. Look at chapter 2, verse number 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, here we see in this passage, as the Lord speaks to John the Apostle, then to the seven churches, we are finding language that within the context of the first century, conditions is relatively clear. Emphasized here is the sovereignty of the head, Jesus Christ. And what does this sovereign head do? He walks amongst the lampstands, and according to chapter 1, the lampstands are the churches. And as the Word of God says, and he holds the seven stars in his right hand, and the seven stars are who? They are the leaders of the churches. They are the pastors and the elders of the churches. And he has authority over them. And remember, the lampstand being a church, God has given revelation concerning the church, and he says the church is like a lampstand. And why does he say that? Because a, the lampstand holds the light. So the church holds the light and shares the light in their geographical area. And the one great mission of the church is to share the light. And brethren, if a light bulb no longer gives light, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to save it? No. Usually what you do is you take it out and you throw it away. So if a church doesn't bear the light, the Lord will remove that lampstand. He will remove that church. And looking at the end of verse number 5 of Revelation chapter 2, it says, Therefore remember from where you are, have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So in other words, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is coming and he's walking amongst his churches. He's present when we're present. He is there Seeing how you're doing. And we know from chapter 1 that he has absolute total wisdom. We know that he has absolute omniscience. That his eyes are like a flaming fire. We also know that he has absolute authority in verse number 5 of chapter 1, 15 of chapter 1. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. So the one speaking, Jesus Christ, his voice is not just loud. It, is, it has force to it. It has command to it. It has finality about it. Therefore, in other words, if Jesus is speaking, you better listen. And his works here in Revelation is that Jesus is holding the leaders of these churches in his hand, and he speaks 
through them to the people. And as we saw in our reading this morning, what was John's response when this came to him? It says in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, he fell on his face because he was in the presence of God. And he knew the one that was speaking was the one who is the living one who was dead and is alive forevermore and has the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus says to John the Apostle, John, I want you to speak to the churches for me. And when you get what I'm saying, then give it to them. The seven letters to the seven churches. This is what ought to be. It's the Lord's examination of the church. And it is a pattern, really, for all church ministry that Jesus gives the state of the church, whether it is praise to the church or gives them a promise or rebukes them or warns them. So we see that the Lord is walking amongst his churches. He's examining them. And he continually knows their work. He knows their suffering. He knows their ministries. He knows their sins. He has eyes that are a flame of fire. So he sees with penetrating discernment and accuracy to which no one can attain. He is the ultimate judge. And if we, are to, if we were to judge the church, we would be too lenient. We would judge inaccurately because we didn't have all the knowledge. Or we, we would judge too severely, too harshly. So we're not the judges. We're never the judges. Christ is the judge. So only Christ can judge his church properly. And be sure of this, he does. And we have it right in Scripture. As the the Lord examines this first church, the church at Ephesus, this is what he's going to do. He's going to first give a commendation, and then he's going to give a condemnation, and then he's going to give counsel on what to do, and then he's going to give a challenge after the counsel. That's how the Lord does it. That's a pattern of all good counselors to be able to put those things into practice. So let's look at the first thing in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2. The commendation Christ perceives. It says in verse number 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Now, to me, that is a great church. They're a hardworking church, which had good deeds, and they labored to the point of exhaustion, enduring even the burdens of ministry with great patience. They were a separate church. They couldn't even bear evil. They were unwilling to put up with evil people, meaning that they were a church who did church discipline. They didn't tolerate evil. Also, they were a pure church. They exposed unsound heretical teaching. 
and they found those to be true and those to be false. So doctrinally sound and unwilling to put up with false teachers, that's the church. And then they were an enduring church in verse number 3. They had perseverance. They were not quitters. They refused to give up in the face of opposition and hardship. They didn't grow weary in doing God's work. And then, of course, this is the church that hated what God hated. Verse number 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And, of course, the Nicolaitans were immoral, and they promoted immorality. In, In their religiosity, they did. They designated them and pointed them out as as false believers. And we can conclude from all these things that Ephesus was a strong, biblically orthodox church with strong convictions, and she could not yield the faith or play the traitor to their Lord. They excelled in discipline. They excelled in the soundness of their faith. They excelled in accuracy towards heretics. Would you and I want to join that church? Absolutely. I'd want to be part of that church. Matter of fact, that's what we strive for in a church. So a church, though, may have every wheel turning and the machinery of ministry moving at a steady rate, and yet something very important could escape their notice. And I want you to notice in the next passage, in verse number four, the Lord tells them what he does, what does not please him. And notice what it says in verse four. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Now, this is the first church of the seven churches that the message is going to go to in Asia Minor. And so the Lord says this first again. This is what he points out again. Just think of this. This great church, this orthodox church, And all its behaviors and ministries lacked love. How did that happen? This early love, proof of the new life they had in Christ, had cooled off in spite of their doctrinal purity and their active service. The great physician put his finger on the problem and diagnosed the condition. And the condemnation is singular, but it is very, very serious. And that is that of declining love. This is no complaint of an enemy, but a dear wounded friend. Will we grieve him whose heart was pierced for our redemption? Brothers and sisters, can you and I let Jesus find out our love is departing? That we cease to be zealous for him anymore. The Ephesian church, along the way of running the Christian race, 
fighting the Christian warfare got distracted away from devotion to Jesus Christ. This is a warning to us. The warning to us who are being faithful, who are doing everything we know to do as a believer, who want to be faithful to the Lord and obey him, who want to love the Lord. They stop pursuing the goal. And the goal of the Christian life is the goal of Christ-likeness through a personal relationship with Christ. See, we we don't want to become a church of loveless orthodoxy. We don't want to become a church like that. But it takes everyone to make sure that doesn't happen. Not just one person, everyone. Because declining love can be an infection in the congregation. And I think that's what it was here. Because any time we're departing from one thing, we're replacing it with something else. We have to be sure of this. Anytime we depart from our first love, we depart to some other object of affection. That's why Paul told Timothy, listen, people are going to be lovers of self. He was talking to the church. Lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure. We have it all before us in America. All these things are right at our fingertips, and they are the goal of most people. But they are not the goal of believers. Thank the Lord that stuff's there, but that's not my goal. Because if I lose that, it hasn't affected my relationship with Christ. A church who moves away from its first love will be susceptible to develop misplaced affections and will be at risk of becoming cold-hearted and even hard-hearted. I know all the doctrine, I know all the truth, but I, and I display it like that. I'm not, I don't have the love that goes along with it, right? You have to have both. You have to have both. So many things can be easily given to the throne of our hearts and crowd out our affection for God. If our love has grown the least bit cold this morning, then we have done something terribly wrong to our best and our closest friend. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Can there be greater grief in the church than the Lord says to us, I have this against you? I know your heart. I know where you're at. I know what's going on in your homes. I know your ministries. I know what you really love. The Lord knows all these things. That's the point of the passage. He has penetrating judgment. He sees down to the deep recesses of our heart. God takes special notice of the way 
and the manner in which his people think of him and the way they tend his services and worship. He, spe- he takes special note of that. In fact, why are we saved? We are saved, of course, I said to obey, but we are saved to worship. That's why we're saved. To have a relationship with the God who created the heaven and the earth through Jesus Christ. The God that we're going to spend all eternity with. But thank the Lord he doesn't leave us there. In in chapter 2, verse number 5, he gives now the counsel that he prescribes to the church. And what is the counsel? Actually, it's a threefold counsel, counsel. Remember, repent, and return and repeat. Look what it says in verse 5. Remember, therefore remember from where you have fallen. Now, this is how we execute, that means put to death and eliminate this grievous sin in our life when we detect it. First, we remember that the church has lost their bearing and needed to regain them again, that the church's previous condition is a allude to in the way a fall. It says, from where you have fallen. It's a fall away from something. A departure from their first love is viewed as a fall from a previous position that they held. And that position was a growing, loving relationship with Christ. They've fallen from that, even though they're doing everything else right. They're backslidden. And when we backslide, it's, it is not the Lord who has moved or changed his love. It, it is us. Who have, we have moved away from the Lord. And there is a subtle truth. Alexander Straff brings this out in his book on love, and he says this, that love can grow cold while outward religious performance still appears to be acceptable and even praiseworthy. It's easy to be satisfied with religious performance or even to check our boxes. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I'm done, I guess I'm doing pretty good. Jesus even said to the religious leaders of his day, Woe to you Pharisees, for you paid tithe and mint of mint and rue and every kind of green garden herb, and yet disregard justice, and love for God. Then he says this, but these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Both of them go together. Obedience and love go go together. And I obey Jesus not because I have to, but because I love him. That's completely different. Completely different than just hard obedience to a ruler, right? Or someone who is authoritative. I want to do this. I want to serve the Lord. I want to live for him. I want to please him. Now mark it down, Christian. The greatest danger to any church, any church, at any point in history is declining love because this is the very thing that displeases God. But you notice in our text here, it says, remember, to recall your faithfulness of early years and take inventory. Remember when you first came to Christ and he saved you. 
you were full of joy. You were full of desire to know his word. You wanted to know more. Your affections were aflamed for Christ. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was your mantra. But we need to recall past joys. When we're in the valleys, which we are there most of the time, we need to remember the joys and the attitudes and the experiences that we have had as believers and that we still today want to know more of Jesus and more of his word. And at one time, nothing could divert our attention from him. You were never weary of hearing of Jesus. You were never wearying of hearing from him. You love to hear the gospel. Because every time you hear the gospel, you learn more about the gospel. Of the deep, broad, high love of Jesus Christ towards you and I. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. You couldn't get enough of Jesus and his gospel. Perhaps now, though, your attention is not so keen on preaching. You can't wait to get home and do what you need to do at home. Cut your grass. Eat lunch. Go visit somebody. Or just go relax on your couch or something. Go watch your favorite soap opera or TV program or YouTube thing. That's what you're thinking about. If you're thinking like that, then you're departing from your first love. Maybe your Christian life is kind of dull now. You have a spiritual appetite of being more excited with novelties than about truth and theology. Once you were never disappointed with Jesus or displeased with him, but because of a sickness, because of a loss of a job or a family problem or some disappointment in your life, you've lost, lost, lost interest and cooled off. At first, you would have blessed his name in everything. But now you go home and grumble in your houses at the slightest problem. You were once consecrated to him in zealous, joyful service. And when he said, I want you to serve, you had no problem being the first in line. So remember, the big beginning and compare that beginning with your present state. For the Ephesian church, the way forward was backward. Look back from where you're fallen. You're, you think you're doing all right, but you're not. I'm telling you, you're not doing good. You're in spiritual decline, and I am not pleased with that. Then you have to ask yourself, self, how can I really be faring with my Lord? How am I really faring with my Lord? Have I fallen away from the measure where I ought to be? That's the first thing he says. And the second thing he says in verse number five is that remembering is first, but it follows by another imperative command, repent. 
You know what will change God's will in Scripture? You know when God really relents? People say, well, does God change his mind? The answer is yes, but not, not for everything. He changes his mind when his people repent. He changes his attitude toward that person. His love is still there, but now something gets rekindled because we repent of it. And the Lord's command is by way of command to the believer, and here it's an urgent appeal for an instant change of attitude, a change of thinking, a change of conduct, and do it before it's too late. Anytime we think of repentance, we have to think of at least four simple things. Number one, repentance means you call your sin what it is, right? Don't call it a nice, nice, uh, nice name. Call it what it really is. In this case, it's declining love. I've moved away from the Lord, all right? Because I've done that, I'm sinning. Also, you have to drop it. Once you realize it, identify it, as it says in Isaiah, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. You have to drop it. And then you have to prove you dropped it. As it says in Luke, therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. That means you're going to get back to where you've fallen. And then, of course, the fourth thing is that you've got to replace your sin with righteous behavior. There's always this taking off that old sinful garment and putting on that clean garment. Taking off unrighteousness and putting on righteousness. And then he says a third thing, and that would be this in verse 5. He says, and do the deed you did at first. That means return and repeat. Do something you once did. It could be here. It could mention that these are the things I'm not really thinking about the gospel anymore or I'm not praying the way I once did with the Lord. I have not been regular and consistent in that. I have not been meditating upon the Lord when I I have not been responding to preaching. There's many things that can go into this. But notice it does not say repent and get back your first love. It says, but repent and do the deed you did at first. The responsibility is on us, and it's practical repentance. For in doing the first works, you will prove that you have come back to your first love, obedience out of love for Christ. So not doing, it's not doing more things here. It's rather the quality of love. Duty motivated by transparent love for the Lord Jesus and one another. That the church finding delight in the two great commandments. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul, all thy strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. He's calling us back. Thank the Lord when when we repent, he receives us. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to bring us back where we've fallen. But here's the challenge he gives also. Part of the challenge in Revelation chapter 2, verse number 5, the last part of the verse, the challenge is that of a threat and then that of a promise. 
Notice in verse number 5, it says, Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So it's all depending on our repentance. Getting back. Making sure our affections are back where they ought to be. He tells them, if they don't repent, I will cut down the lampstand that holds the light so it will be unable to hold that light and share the light with their geographical area that our great mission of the church will be shut down in that local area unless you repent. Who, does, who says this? The Lord says this. You know who closes churches down? The Lord does. The building is not the church. But there's many churches that are still around, but they're not, you go inside and they're not preaching the gospel. They don't even open up the word of God anymore. The things that are doing in the organization of leadership, they're putting women in leadership, where the Bible's clear that male leadership is in the church. They, they, the church is not carrying out church discipline. They're not teaching the word of God. They're not living a holy life. They're not doing any of those things. That means they're no longer a church, so the Lord removes them. You can have your building, you can have your, your whatever you gather together with your wealth. Do what you want, but the Lord's removed the light. See, that's, that's a pretty, man. Can Christ do any other thing than do that? If he's not honored there? Christ cannot allow his church to be a part of, uh, Apart from his love, it, it is, if, if the first love has been abandoned then there's no, and there's no repentance, then the church shall be left in darkness. Now, it may mean that the Lord removes the faithful ministers who bring the word of God and removes them, them to another sphere. It may also include that the Lord will cut loose the usefulness to preserve the truth in that place if love does not return. And further, it could mean, if the Lord wills, that he takes away the church completely. And, of course, their very existence goes uh, out. They're done. So the Lord will do that. And for what reason? That there's no love there for God. And then he gives a promise, and I'll not spend time on this. It says, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here's the promise. He says, if you repent, I will bring you closer to the center, to the very tree of life that is in the presence of God. And see, brethren, we, we need to heed the message the Lord Jesus communicates to his churches so we remain a light-bearing community of obedient believers who keep themselves in the love of God. So we need to see this. We need to hear this. We need to act on this. And he says, he who runs well till the end will receive a crown of life. He says that those who hold in there, keep going, walk with me all the way, there will be a reward. There is always hope. Jesus gives counsel to his church. 
so that they, as a life-bearing community, can fulfill their mission and, of course, in the days in which God calls them as a church in any particular time in history. So if somewhere along the way you stop pursuing a deep, loving relationship with Christ, if you walked off the path of righteousness and started walking in your own righteousness and started enjoying the ease of worldly pleasure, then your spiritual gauge reads danger. You have left your first love. Here's what we need to do. To keep ourselves in the love of God, we need to say, do it exactly what the scripture says. Remember where you have fallen, repent, and do the deed you did at first. Here are some directives to help you that I gleaned and gleaned from an old Puritan, Thomas Vincent, who was born at, in 1634, died in 1678. He was only 44 years old. He memorized the whole New Testament in the book of Psalms. He wrote many things. He wrote a book called The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ. And he says, here's, our, here's nine principles that we should always be practicing in our pursuit of Christ so our love does not cool off. Here's the first thing. He says, very simple things. Number one, be much in contemplation of Christ. Your first priority is to meditate on Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he is going and has, is doing for you, how wonderful and miraculous and matchless his mercy and his grace and his love is towards you. Meditate on that. Secondly, he said, be much in reading and studying the scriptures. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell where? Within you. Feed on the scriptures for spiritual food and for your soul's health. Thirdly, he said, be much in prayer to God for this love. This is God's will for us if we ask him for it, to keep us where we ought to be. Fourthly, to get much faith. It says in 1 Peter 1.8, and though we do not see him, we love him. And though we do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Number five, he said, labor for much of the spirit. Labor for much of the light of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Where in Ephesians it says, don't get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. In other words, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Number six, he says, labor for clear evidence of his love to you. Labor for that. Look for it. 
see proof of it. Number seven, he says, get much hatred for sin. Get much hatred for sin and accordingly watch, pray, strive, fight against sin as the worst evils, as that which so much displeases the Lord. Get sin out of your life. Put it to death. Number eight, he says, associate yourself much, most with the with those who have most love for Christ. Be around people as much as possible who love Jesus. Where it says in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And then number nine, it says, Be much in exercise of this love, whereby it is increased and heightened. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, May the, the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So make these, make these scriptural principles part of your daily routine. Now, if you didn't get those down, don't worry about that. These principles we should really put into practice in our everyday life, our every activity, our every contact, our every thought, that Christ is to be our focus. And when you love Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, God is pleased and he's glorified. And if we, if we don't, Revelation 2.5, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, the reason why I said don't worry about writing those down is because I'm going to give you a book this morning. I ran across this book uh, from a she uh, shepherd's conference, I think, years ago. It is put together by John MacArthur. It's called Remember and Return, Rekindling Your Love for the Savior. Now, I pulled the book out, and I said to my wife, I think, uh, I don't know when I exactly said it. I said, why don't we take one day, and we're just going to go meet together, and we're going to sit on a bench somewhere, and we're going to read just one chapter. It's, it's made to be devotionals for each day, but we're only doing one chapter, the short chapters a week. I read, she reads, then we pray. And um, we're on like seventh week or something like that. And I says, this, is, this would be profitable for everybody to do. And every chapter has something to do with bringing your mind again to focus on Jesus Christ so you do not drift away. And that your love is always being rekindled for the Savior. So I, I really, I would, whether you are once a week, do it. I, I would recommend that. Read one chapter. Either yourself go somewhere or better get someone else to do it with you. And then I want you to ingest what you're reading because it's, it's full of scripture. And he does pull a lot from the old Puritans too. I want you to then meditate upon it, and then I want you to digest it. 
so it gets into your soul. And then I want you to adore, adore the Lord. I want you to confess your sin. I want you to be thankful for so great salvation God's given you. And then pray that the Lord will make you a servant in this church. And pray that he will make you aware if at any point in your Christian journey you're drifting away and he'd pull you back, that you pray for that. So I want you to receive this gift. And I, I pray that you would use it. It's a good thing to do. Just once a week, get with somebody. Get with your wife if you're married. Get with a friend if you're not. and um, Or get with yourself and just take one chapter once a week and just think about that. I don't want to, I don't want it to be like a fire hose on your in your brain where you have all the stuff and you don't get anything. No, I want one thing and then think about it, meditate on it, and let it be part of your life. And for what reason? So we as a church, we could be doing a lot of good things, but one thing that we cannot do, we cannot drift away from Christ. Right? We cannot. In these days, we cannot, and I know there's tons of distractions. I get distracted and pulled away. We got these things called cell phones, and we have iPads, and we have computers, and we're on those things way more than we should be. But they pull us away with all this information that's worthless and doesn't help you spiritually. So you have to be disciplined in that area. All right, I said enough. So while you're going out the back door, now you have to go out the back door. So if you're in the back room, you have to go out the back door to get one of these devotionals, all right? It's called Remember and Return, Rekindling Your Love for the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your people. Thank you, Lord, for our church. Thank you, Lord, that we have many uh, people in our church who love you, love your word, love me want to tell others about you and I pray Lord that that would not stop that would just get more intense as time goes on and as the world gets darker and more distracted by all kinds of foolish things I pray Lord your church would not our eyes would be upon you fixed upon our Savior and I pray Lord as we fix ourselves upon you, that you would definitely be present amongst us and we would know it, that the Spirit of God would not be quenched or grieved and the Word of God would be exalted as high as your name. And I pray, Lord, that you would be lifted up, that men and women, boys and girls, people would see Christ and want to run towards him for salvation. That we would love you, Lord, we would love people, and we would love the lost. I pray that for us, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.